Oh, I'm sorry you said Bitcoin. That's outside of our risk appetite, so we can't onboard you. Oh, no, no, try. Just hear me out. Dear listeners of The Laundry, welcome back. Today I'm joined by Ben Brown in the studio. Now, Ben is heading up Strice's expansion into Denmark, and it's his first podcast episode. Are you excited to join? Absolutely, Frederick. It's super good to be on The Laundry because, you know, we've got a lot of listeners. And even more cool, today we're going to have the first Danish guest on it. To the listeners of The Laundry, you'll be hearing a lot more from Ben because he's the new superstar of our new show, How Criminals Launder Money as well. So tell a little bit about the series and please tell us what's today's episode going to be about. Absolutely. So it's a short video series where we go through how the criminals actually launder money. And we basically pick up some cases there so that we can share the knowledge in the industry and get a bit more light shined on these elements. And the episode that's coming up is about the great British money laundering. It's about how 19 UK companies laundered a hell of a lot of money through a pretty complex system. Look forward to hearing further about it though. Absolutely. All right. So we'll jump straight into how criminals launder money after our conversation with Marcus from January. Welcome to The Laundry. Welcome, Marcus. Great to have you on The Laundry. Thank you. Can we start off by having you introduce yourself and also, of course, uh, Janima that you work for yeah. and describe some of your experience with risk? Yeah, of course. Yeah, My name is uh, Marcus Mølleskov. I'm 33 from Copenhagen. I've been, I am the Chief Risk and Compliance Officer in Januar and have been for almost one and a half year now. Before that, I worked seven, seven uh, or so years in, in banking working with financial risk management in Saxo Bank and Nordea. And I have a master's in mathematical finance from Copenhagen Business School. So in, in terms of Januar, Januar is a payment service provider, hopefully soon a payment institution licensed by the Danish FSA. What we do is that we provide payment accounts for crypto companies specifically. So we are focusing on this niche that is heavily underserved. People always ask Could why we're talk? called Januar. The reason it's actually a good story. We're we're named after the the Roman god Janus, who is the god with two faces, one looking into the past and into the future. And he's the god of transitions, doorways and gates and bridges. And Yano as a company is trying to build a bridge between, you know, the old financial industry and the new crypto economy. And we're also trying to be the compliance gateway that kind of weeds out all the bad actors in the crypto industry and select that it's only the good actors in the industry that will be allowed to to interact with the traditional financial industry. Hmm. That sounds like a really good explanation of kind of where Yanua actually sits in the ecosystem because it's obviously very diversified with exchanges, tokenization companies, mm. NFT providers, DeFi, etc. But I think uh, if you could just touch on kind of why there's a gap, I suppose, and yeah. what is that specific market gap? Yeah, I mean, we were originally founded uh, because a member of our founding team and also a lot of founders in the Danish crypto industry that is within the network of our founding team have personally called every single Danish bank and said, hello, my name is such and such. I would like to open a corporate account. And then the you know banking employee says, yeah, sure. That sounds exciting. What does your company do? Well, I have this website where I sell Bitcoins to private individuals. Oh, I'm sorry you said Bitcoin. That's outside of our risk appetite, so we can't onboard you. Oh, no, no, try. Just hear me out. 
I've paid several hundred thousand Danish kroner to a large Danish lawyer firm to help for them to help me with writing my my AML policies and AML procedures. I'm registered with the Danish FSA. I'm doing everything I can to comply with Danish anti-money laundering regulation and stuff. And the banks just don't care. Just, you said Bitcoin, we can't give you an account. Period. Mm-hmm. So so that is what we are trying to do. We are we are suffering from the the problem we are trying to solve ourselves. Uh, there are very mm-hmm. few banks that want to you know talk with us about helping us get an account so we can put that forward to our customers. But because we are very transparent about being compliance first, and and, and that is a real uh, ambition for us, we have been able to get a banking partner. Uh, so we are now able to provide payment accounts to, to our customers. But how how are your assessment unique then? Because obviously this is something mm-hmm. banks probably would like to do themselves as well. Yeah. So what type of risk indicators are you guys looking for? And what, what makes the Januar uh, risk assessment unique? Yeah. I mean, we, we are looking at a lot of different things, of course. One of the things that we are doing that, that no banks are doing is that we are, of course, you know, buying up tools for monitoring transactions in the crypto space. So there are a lot of different tools and, and, and we're utilizing them. You know, when banks go out publicly and say, our customers will not be able to buy Bitcoins, then it makes no sense for them to go out and buy these tools and train employees in how to, to risk assess and or how to monitor crypto transactions, where we on the other hand say, we are focusing on this niche. So for us, it makes total sense because we expect to get a lot of customers within this, mm. this industry. But would you say that this is something that banks will probably in the long term start trying to build themselves? Or do you feel like being sort of niche and having the expert and domain mm. uh, expertise like you guys have and being a third party provider on this as on top will, will sort of be the future business model that yeah society will, will come to know and love? Yeah. I mean, it's very difficult to say. What I can say is that even if the banks decide to go down this path, you know, buying a Formula One car does not make you Michael Schumacher. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so our CEO is the former head of uh, customer success and head of training in Chainalysis. So he has traveled the world educating FIUs, educating FSAs, and educating all the big crypto exchanges on how to do money laundering. So he is literally one of the top experts in the world on doing it. Mm. So that is, of course, a huge benefit for us, at least on the crypto side. And then we have, of course, hired, you know, AML experts from the fiat side. We've hired people from banks and consultancies, you know, to help us on on that side of the payment spectrum. So we have both sides covered. Um, mm-hmm. So I do think we have an edge in, in that case. Yeah. Definitely. I think yeah, in some of our previous podcasts, we talked about like mixing and tumbling as one of the several methods that criminals, of course, use. And mm. I guess when you're doing your assessments of potential customers, how do you kind of classify low, medium, high risk? And yeah, what would be some of the indicators you're looking for? Yeah. And, and that's another thing that we are able to do that, that, you know, regular banks aren't because we are focusing on this niche uh, that everybody else say, okay, Everything related to crypto, that's high risk. But we are able to say, okay, within this small niche of crypto companies, we can then zoom in and say, okay, what is low risk and what's medium and what's high risk within that industry? And that is sort of unique for us, which allows us to say, okay, you know, this type of customer, that's a low risk within the crypto industry. This type of customer is medium and high risk within the crypto industry. And that is something we're looking at. And, And currently, because we're still young, we have just completely disregarded, you know, high-risk customers. And I would say that 
mixers and tumblers, especially with what we saw with Tornado Cash recently that was mm. put on the OFAC list. I mean, mixers and tumblers is just, it's not even a high-risk customer. That's like a, a no-go. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I think maybe picking up on one more example of that is, you know, DeFi platforms, especially last year, surged. And mm. is this kind of like, what's your view on that? You mentioned like kind of new, getting more like knowledge basis, but what's your assessment there? Yeah, I mean, for now, for us at least, we classified everything DeFi as high risk, which means it's currently off base. We don't think that we have enough information about in order to assess which DeFi companies are, are you know, valid and which DeFi companies are elect. We are sort of waiting for this crash where all the uh, elect actors go down and, and all the, the cases come up with all the bad actors. Similar to what we saw in, in 2008 during the the summer of ICOs where everybody started the ICO. Of course, there were a lot of bad actors mixed in. And then during the, the crash in, in 19, it suddenly became very, very clear which ICOs were good companies trying to actually build something and which ICOs were just, you know, rock pulls and scams and punchy schemes. And we are hmm. waiting a little bit for, for that kind of crash in, in the DeFi space and, and also a little bit in the NFT space to, to get that data to, to make assessment of which DeFi and NFT players we want to actually work with. Interesting. Just a question on the mixing and tumbling a part, part of this as well. Mm. It's easy for a company, or no, I'm sorry, not easy for a company, but a person that has some, some crypto. Maybe in the past they've used some sort of mixing or tumbling process. Mm. Um, we're talking, this might have happened 10 years. Does that still mean that it's a no-go? Like, Or do you have some sort of cutoff on how long it would take before you'd look on the blockchain and see, well, this this was the time, time and space, basically. And for it to to end up being legal legal funds over over a period of time mm, not not right now no so so no cutoff no 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 cutoff at the moment uh, i'm mm. not sure what what would require us to change that i'm not saying we wouldn't but but right now i can't see why we would okay interesting and taking one step back as well one thing i found really interesting just in general sort of crypto and decentralized financing mm. debate is DeFi versus traditional banking, having having yeah a standardized way of handling money versus basically the new and modern type take on the economy. Personally, I, I'd say it's like a very small fee to pay for a bank to take care of your money and having the money centralized and having sort of a go-to mm-hmm. platform where you can get help, they could take care of your money, you get a advice if something would happen if the bank would get robbed most likely you'd get the money back as well mm. meanwhile you know, on the blockchain or, or in crypto if you lose your ledger or yeah. uh, say you have the have it in some sort of account that nobody else has access to and god forbid you'll be hit by a bus nobody else would be able to retrieve that no. type the, the money so I'm, I'm curious what's your take on this like the entire d5 versus traditional banking setup yeah I do think that DeFi has a place in the not necessarily the way it's set up now. I remember, you know, my mother when when I first told my mother I went into uh, to Yenoa, you know, she was very scared. The first thing she said was, "Now you're not doing something illegal, right?" Uh, so <laughs> I, I I told her no, and I assured her that we are not doing anything illegal. Actually, we're doing exactly the opposite. We are trying to be, you know, over compliant in in most cases and and try to weed out. And, and help, you know, banks and other financial institutions figure out which are, are legal actions, which are not. But then she said something afterwards, which was that I don't think it will ever, you know, be 
become widely adopted. So why are you going into this? Is this you know worth your time? And 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 the reason she did, she thought that is actually the important part because she thought I don't think I will ever understand how this works. So why would I use it or my Visa card? And I asked her, how does your Visa card work? And she couldn't answer. So 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 understanding the technology is not necessarily a a limiting factor of adoption. What I do think is a limiting factor is consumer protection. As you mentioned, okay, if you lose your phone or something like that, what happens to your money? And another is, is ease of use, where, of course, you, you don't necessarily need to understand what's happening, but you need to be able to understand how to use it. And I do think that, that, that financial institutions going into the space, providing some of this consumer protection, providing some ease of use in terms of if you lose your phone, we will be able to help you to recover your funds and that kind of stuff. I do think is is necessary somewhat for, for wide adoption of crypto. And in order for financial institutions to go into the space, we do need more regulation. We just need to be this, careful this, not to over-regulate it. Yeah. So this type of support, is this something general will does provide or will provide in the future as well to, to be sort of the intermediary on this? Yeah, I mean, we, we are actually currently working on a, a a product solution where we, in collaboration with banks, I mean, we as I mentioned before, banks go out publicly and say they don't want anything to do with crypto, so they don't mm. educate uh, employees on how to, tra- how to monitor transactions, they don't buy the right tools, they don't really do anything, but they do have high net worth individuals who wants to trade it. So the bank just kind of look away and let the high net worth individuals do that. And and we are soon coming out with a product where we will say, okay, banks, tell your high net worth individuals, create an account with Genoa. Then we will, in collaboration or in partnership with the banks, we will then monitor those transactions on behalf of the banks and send customer reports, customer risk reports based on our conclusions. So the banks can rest assured that, okay, we are allowing our customers to do something, but we know it's taken care of. We don't need to worry. And since this is a, a AML podcast, if there are any AML people sitting in banks who are worried about their customers transacting in crypto and, and not having an understanding of what's happening, please call me or write me or, or whatever. Get, get in touch and we can try and, and talk about how Yanoa might be able to help you monitor these transactions. Brilliant. Yeah, I think on like, Obviously, we touched on like the partnership kind of model there to enable wider adoption, giving assurance to like the consumer space and things like that. But I think also, Marcus, you you mentioned like more regulation is needed, but not too much regulation. Yeah. And obviously, we're seeing the landscape really rapidly changing here for crypto firms, of course, and what they need to mm-hmm. follow. How do you see that a little bit further on like the challenges side of the regulation, over-regulation or the opportunities that come from more regulation? Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, a lot of people are talking about, you know, we need to be careful that crypto does not become shadow banks. And I agree because then you lose the consumer protection and, and all that stuff, which is necessary for wide adoption. And you would get a lot of fraud and, and, and bad cases, which would could potentially make the, the media consensus on, on crypto. But on the other hand, we also need to make sure that there's a level playing field. You know, so, so telling banks that, okay, for fiat transaction, we only need to do travel rules or documented transaction if it's over thousand euro. But for crypto, we need to do travel rule and provide documentation for all transactions, no matter the, the size of the transaction. I mean, that's not a level playing field. And that's 
also a bit hypocritical in, in my point of view, you know, because we've had these huge scandals in the past decade where banks have been caught doing anti doing money laundering. But for some reason, because the media says that crypto is used for criminal activities because it was back in 15 before we got all of these tools to actually monitor it, which we have today, then suddenly crypto is scrutinized a lot more and need to comply with much stricter rules than the financial sector in general, which I don't mm. think is fair. No, it's, it's still a fairly, like, I, I'd argue it's still a fairly new phenomenon though. Yes. Still, like it obviously is, is. The yeah, traditional yeah, yeah. banking, we, we, there, it, there's, yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to play the devil's advocate here. It's <laughs> like, we, the, the, there's lacking data still on sort of the dark numbers, obviously on both traditional banking and mm. how much is money under there as compared to blockchain yeah. and, and crypto. Yeah. But a, a uh, lot is yeah. happening in the crypto space, but we do mm. see it getting cleaned up. Uh, I mean, we have uh, each analysis where CEO work, they do an annual crypto crime report, which I highly recommend to read. And their, their crypto crime report for 15 was that about uh, 33% of, of transaction volume in crypto was directly related to crime. 33%, that is a lot. Mm. But that was in 15. The number for 2021 was 0.15% of transaction volume that was related to crime. And the best numbers and newest numbers we have from IMF for, for the fiat world is that between two and 7% of global GDP is related to crime. You know, so, so there's two things we need to note here. One is the, the difference in size. So 0.15% compared to between two and seven. So that's a huge difference in size. The yep. other thing is the margin of error. I mean, you need to be quite sure, you know, exactly. <laughs> you need to be quite sure of, about your calculations to say, okay, it's 0 0.15. It's not 0 0.2, 0 0.1, but it's 0 0.15% of transactions, transaction sizes, or transaction volume, sorry, that's related to crime compared to IMF, where it's between 2 and 7%-ish. We don't actually know. And and that is that is a testament in, in my point of view, at least, to uh, to how transparent crypto is and how easy it is to track transactions and figure out, okay, when is that transaction related to crime? Where in mm. fear, it's so, just, yeah, people don't know. Yeah, so yeah, so in your, your stance is that it's firmly way more secure knowing where the money goes, basically, using, using a crypto. Yeah, I mean, in crypto, we have full transparency. Media and, and people in general, I hear this a lot from, from when I talk to bankers, is that they talk about anonymity in crypto. And that is, I mean, it's not just false, it's directly wrong, you know, it's the opposite. We have pseudonymity in crypto, which means that there's full transparency for all transactions. The only difference is when people talk about anonymity is that all transactions or your address as it's called is hidden behind an ID. So you don't know the physical person or, or legal person behind that ID. But since 2020, all crypto companies or all crypto exchanges and brokers have had a legal requirement to collect the KYC documentation, which means that if, if the police you know, spots a transaction going to a, a darknet market or a, a drug dealer or whatever on, on, on the blockchain, they can take that address of the sender of the money and they can follow wherever the money came from or follow in the other end until they hit an exchange or a broker, they can then subpoena that broker and get the KYC documentation, and then they have the culprit. Where in the fiat world, you have to subpoena the 
bank of the transaction that they think they did, then they will see, okay, the money came from another bank, they would have to subpoena that bank, and then they have to do that over and over again. And if that crosses countries and stuff, it just takes a really long time and it's a really complicated process to, to investigate these type of, of crimes. When crypto, you can on chain, you can track it, track it from end to end and you just have to subpoena the one exchange that where the criminal tries to, to withdraw out fiat. Yeah, R- really strong arguments. I'm curious, what's, what's your go-to argument against crypto and for fiat in, in, this, uh, in, in this discussion? Against crypto. <laughs> now you're asking me to play the devil's advocate yeah. against myself. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, it's nuanced. Uh, it's always nuanced. Yeah, it's it's always nuanced. And I would say it, it probably comes back to the user protection. You know, the, the stuff about if you lose your phone. You know, people, mm-hmm. over, people often compare your crypto wallet to a bank account. And th- again, that's like a misconception. It's not really a bank account because in the bank account, the bank is there to help you do whatever. And if you make a wrong transaction, the bank can, you know, pull the transaction back and that kind of stuff. It's a better resemblance would probably be a small safe in your, in your, in your wallet, where if you lose mm-hmm. that safe or if you lose the forget the combination to the safe or stuff, the money's just gone. There's no way to access this. And that's probably a, a better analogy. So what we need for wide adoption is that we need services potentially from the established financial industry that helps you yeah, rec- reclaim that money if, if it's lost somehow. So that could be key storage or, or whatever, some kind of signature like a bank vault where you know you have one key and the bank has another key. And okay, if you misplace one key, there might be a third key hidden somewhere where if you sign the right documents and that kind of stuff, you would still be able to get into it. There's something like that. Brilliant. And I really appreciate you playing the devil's advocate on this one. Final question on my end, at least, is where do you see the market going on this? Where's the industry in five years from now? Your industry, I mean. I mean, uh, if if you're to to trust the internet, it's to the moon, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the slogan. No, I I don't know. It's very difficult to say. I do. I mean, we, we start seeing more and more financial industry players going into the space. We see more and more actual like value creating solutions coming out of it instead of just new coins and that kind of stuff. So I do think it's here to stay and I think it's only going to get bigger. Yeah. The, the question is just, you know, who want to be on the train and, and, and who want to stay behind and, and jump on the next train and just, yeah, be behind forever kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, sounds good. And I think, well, at least from our perspective, of course, like AML KYC is one of the people on the train on this journey and probably be able to help, of course, in that front and compliance experts like yourself, I'm sure will keep doing it as well. So yeah, I think super insightful, much more looking at it at a business angle, how it can actually be adopted widely, obviously. Mm. So yeah, yeah, really nice to have you on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 19 UK companies made 20 billion of dirty money seem legitimate. Welcome back to How Criminals Launder Money. Let's go through the great British money laundering. This was one of Europe's most extensive money laundering operations ever. The criminals created front companies in the UK that then carried out massively phony business deals. 
The money laundering of the $20 billion went on for over four years and it went as follows. The criminals created 19 front companies in the UK often at the same addresses, backed by Russian-based companies. These UK companies sued themselves for hundreds of millions in courts in Moldova. Then a lax judge in Moldova would rule in favor of the company making the claims. The funds would be sent from Russia to the UK front companies in Moldova. Then, as a final step, funds would be transferred to another bank in Latvia, a highly regulated country due to its EU membership. Then suddenly you had a clean trail and the illicit funds were legit. Recently, the BBC reported that thousands of households had their addresses unknowingly used by criminals to register fake companies. There are hundreds of agents setting up companies for clients in a way that allow them to stay anonymous. They can, for example, list their shareholders as companies based in a tax haven and act as their directors without really doing anything often for dozens of companies at the same time. Otherwise, they can also leverage UK laws allowing the use of the nominee director to obscure the identity of the real directors. Furthermore, the criminals can get the jurisdiction for their legal cases shifted to countries like Moldova, which have inherently weaker legal systems. The investigation for the great British money laundering case was extremely difficult, especially outside of the UK due to the lack of cooperation from local authorities. Some of the judges resigned from their jobs and the banks involved said that their operations respected Moldova's legislation and central banking rules. Even worse, Russian officials refused to provide any information and they said they were unaware of any investigation whatsoever. Similar laundering systems, often involving UK front companies, have been used by criminals in Brazil, Syria and Japan. The UK is an excellent choice for such scams because it's easy to set up a front company with relatively few, if any, questions asked. This is one of the many ways to launder money. Make sure to follow Strice so you don't miss out on the next episode. Next week, we'll explore how criminals use trade-based money laundering to keep their cash clean. Wow. That's fascinating. Wow. And well done, Ben. Thank it's you. an incredibly fascinating series. I'm really looking, genuinely looking forward to the next episode. So that was us this week. Please give us a like share it with your financial crime fighting team remember to check out the laundry where we will continue to have interesting guests post more about how criminals launder money talk about technology in the compliance aml and kyc space until next time this was the laundry have a great week